Well, for our text tonight, we're going to be looking at a big old chunk of Genesis. Genesis 37 all the way through to the end. But don't worry, I'm going to pull out the key pieces for us. So what we're doing as we're continuing to look at Christ in the Old Testament, we've established that there are four major tent poles, mountain peaks, whatever you want to call them in the Old Testament. Genesis 3.15, Genesis 12, 15, 17, all clumped together as one because it's one promise stated more fully. Then 2 Samuel 7, then Jeremiah 31. Now where we are today is we're going to be within the radius of tent pole number two. Because tent pole number two, remember, is the connection to Abraham. Genesis 12, 15, and 17, the promises to Abraham. Genesis 37, our text, all the way through the end, is the focus of Joseph. He's the main character, and these last uh, 13 chapters of all of Genesis. So we're still in that radius of tentpole number two because for a lot of this time, well, to the very end of the book, Jacob's still going to be alive, and Jacob received the same promise that Abraham did in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. So we're still caught right in there. We're looking at Joseph, and Joseph is Abraham's great-grandson, so not that far removed. What we're going to be studying, though, is a lesson in typology. We kind of started that a little bit last night, um, but it was a lot more plain and blunt when we compare Christ and Adam. And not necessarily compare, but see the fullness that Christ is the true and better Adam. Typology, you don't know what I mean when I say that. Typology is seeing Christ in figures, in narratives, in substances, in systems in the Old Testament as a type, as a, um, as a shadow, the book of Hebrews calls it, as a copy. So when you see a shadow on the ground, what you can make out about that thing, let's say it's a person, is arms, legs, and, and general size, but sometimes it's distorted based on the sun. You can usually make out gender if you can see a profile and you see hair or some other kind of distinguishing marks. So you can tell what it is. That's a person, probably a male, relatively tallish and skinnyish or largish or whatever, but it's not totally clear. And that's what Old Testament types are. You can kind of see Christ, but it's not totally clear and it's not the real thing. Because if you are after loving someone who says, no, actually, I'm content with your shadow. That's what I'd rather just know and fellowship and, and, and trace. But no, you want the real person, the real thing, the substance, not the copy. And so we're going to look at Joseph as a type that drives us to Christ. Joseph's story for many of us is pretty familiar but what I want to do is walk through episodes in Joseph's life and show how Christ, he's a type of Christ and Christ is the fullness of that. So let's look at this point number one is that of beloved of the father. Genesis 37, verse three. Now Israel, meaning that's, remember that's Jacob. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a very colored tunic. Now, a very colored tunic, I hate to spoil it, is probably long-sleeved and just nice. It was not a rainbow cloak. Just, sorry. Very colored is an extremely difficult word to translate in Hebrew, but it just got wrapped up in Hollywood and all that nonsense. But it was just a nice, full-length, formal tunic. It wasn't a rainbow cloak. But it says he loved Joseph more than all his sons 
He's beloved of the Father. Jesus is in Matthew 3, 17, and behold, a voice out of the heavens said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That Christ has a rank above all the other sons and daughters of God, just as Joseph held a rank as the beloved son over all the other sons of Jacob. Now let's look at number two. His own did not receive him. So Joseph, if you know the story, Joseph's beloved, his brothers hate him, but Jacob is going to send Joseph to his brothers who are shepherding because Joseph is the second youngest out of 12. Only Benjamin's younger than him. The other 10 are off doing the family business, finding grazing lands for the sheep. So Genesis 37, verses 18 through 20. When they, meaning the brothers, saw Joseph from a distance because Jacob, their father, their corporate father, had sent him to go to the brothers to check on them, see how they're doing, all those kinds of things. They saw him from a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Now then, come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits, and we will say a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. Joseph, all he's doing is obeying the father's will. The father said, go to your brethren. And he goes. And before he's even there, he's just in eye shot. They already want to murder him. They already want to kill him. And the only distinguishing thing that they have is that because the father loves him. The father loves him. And he's just obeying the father. And is that not Jesus' same story, John 1, 10 through 11. He, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those were, her, were his own did not receive him. Joseph came to his own flesh and blood brothers, and they wanted to kill him. They didn't receive him. Jesus came to his own people. I mean, these are the covenant people of God and they don't receive him. They don't want him. And by just a few years into his public ministry, less than a few years of his public ministry, they're ready to kill him. So now let's look at a, a third point of this typology. Joseph is betrayed by Judah, and the Greek or the Hellenization of the name Judah becomes Judas. Look at Genesis 37, verses 26 through 28. Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold into the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. Whose idea was it to make money off of Joseph's demise. It was Judas. And they paid for the betrayal. Was they paid, they were paid for, Judah was paid for the betrayal by Gentile, by, by those Midianite traders to be into the hands of Gentiles, where they were assuming he would be killed, would be the end of him. So we know the parallel to Jesus, right? Matthew 26, 14 through 16. Then one of the twelve named Judas, which is just how you change a Hebrew name, Judah, into Greek, it becomes Judas. Named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests 
and said, what are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. From then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Can you see? I mean, it's even down to the money itself. Now, inflation makes it go up from 20 to 30, but still, it's pieces of silver. I mean, that's just, you get shocking. And Judah, the brother of Joseph, he's concerned about making money. It's not enough to kill him. We need to benefit from this. This needs to come into our pocket. And that's Judas. Remember in all of his circumstances and the situations that he has with people. Remember when the, uh, the, the poor woman breaks the box of alabaster and puts it on Jesus and anoints him with it. He's like, hey, wait a minute. We could have sold that and given the money to the poor. But he really just wants money. He's grubbing for money. I'm not content just to turn him over toward these ends. I want to personally profit off it also. So there, the parallel, but the shadow and the fullness, the shadow is Joseph and the fullness is Christ because ultimately Jesus is turned over to Gentiles who execute him. Joseph is turned over to Gentiles also, non-Jews, and has a sort of execution. Look at Genesis 37. This is Joseph crucified as a shadow and a type, not truly. But in verses 31 through 36, so they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood. And then they sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, we have found this. Please examine to see whether it is your son's tunic or not. Then he examined it and said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So Jacob tore his clothes put a sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Then all his sons and his daughters, all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, surely I will go down to Sheol, which is a place of the dead, and mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. Now skip over to Genesis 39, verse 20. It gets worse for Joseph. Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. The jail. Then skip over one more chapter to Genesis 40. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. So we look at this symbolic death of Joseph, that Jacob, his own father, believes that he's dead. There's blood shed. He sees it. It looks as if he's dead. Jacob's grieving as if he's dead. And then the descent of Joseph just gets worse, right? He's thrown into a hole and then he's sold into slavery. And then he's wrongfully accused of rape. And then he's thrown into jail. And then he interprets the cupbearer's dream. Remember, interprets it correctly and says, remember me when you get before Pharaoh. He gets forgotten for a few more years and left in jail even longer. So you can see this downward progression of a symbolic death of Joseph, of the son beloved of the father. But you also see Joseph symbolically raised from that death. Look at Genesis 41, 38 through 44. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? So this is the big moment that on your flannel boards when elementary Sunday school years ago where the pictures of the dreams of Pharaoh, right? 
the skinny stalks and the full stalks of corn, the skinny cows and the fat cows. And Joseph interprets the dream when nobody else could figure it out. And he says that there's going to be seven years of, of ripe and good crops. There's going to be seven years of drought. And Joseph says, here's what you should do. You should find somebody who can oversee a process of storing food and keeping it during those seven years. And then you'll have seven years of drought, but you'll still be fine because you've planned for it beforehand. And they're like, well, is there anybody that could oversee this kind of thing? Verse 38, then verse 39, so Joseph, or Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has informed you of all of this, right now he's a prisoner. He's a prisoner in jail, been forgotten and forlorn, symbolically dead. Since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house. And according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring, put it on his hand, and uh, from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put the gold necklace around his neck. He had him ride in his second chariot and they proclaimed before him, bow the knee. And he set over him, him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in the land of Egypt. So Joseph, we see here a symbolic resurrection. To what level? He's brought out of death, the dungeon. I mean, he's not even good enough to be a slave. He's a prisoner in a, a, an Egyptian prison. And then he gets exhausted. Only I will be greater than you. But, and then everybody's going to do homage to you. That's worship to you. And then when you go through the city, what's going to be the command shouted out? Bow the knee. What did God or did Paul record about Jesus in Philippians 2? That how many knees will bow? Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess that you are Lord Jesus. Do you see Joseph is having that same type of moment that he's second only to, and this is kind of a, a failed um, illustration of the Trinity, that there's a father and a son, but uh, with Pharaoh and Joseph being, the, you know, Pharaoh and then second in command, but he's in charge of everything. And what did Jesus say in Matthew 28? All authority has been given unto me by the father. And Joseph now has all authority given unto him by Pharaoh. So he has that resurrection moment. So you see the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ in this picture of Joseph going down, 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 and then all the way up. That what looked like would be Joseph's ultimate demise, there is no way that any kind of even a, a, a fraction of what could be called success could ever happen to him. He goes from that to the most powerful position in the whole world because Egypt is the world power. And he goes from the bottom all the way to the top in an instant. I mean, he walks in, talks to Pharaoh, a little bit of dream talk, and then immediately he's got the ring, he's got the robe, he's in the chariot, and everybody's bowing to him right then. So we can't help but see that Christ in his crucifixion, that when he is there, it looks like it's over. And then he goes from death all the way to seated at the right hand of the Father, and we're waiting now for every knee to bow and every tongue confess. We're in uh, a state of already not yet, whereas Joseph had an already and yet resurrection type moment. And that seems to be the big, the big crescendo, but there's more to go. 
with Joseph. Look at this concept of the bread of life. Because remember, now he's number two in the, in the world, but there's still a drought coming. Genesis 41, 46 through 49. Now Joseph was 30 years old. That's pretty interesting. How old was Jesus when he starts his ministry? 30 years old. When he stood before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven years of plenty, the land brought forth abundantly. So he gathered all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and placed the food in the cities. He placed in every city the food from its own surrounding fields. Thus Joseph stored up grain and an abundance, great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he stopped measuring it, for it was beyond measure. Joseph now has grain, meaning bread, beyond measure. You can't even count it. And then look at, skip down to verse 53. When the seven years of plenty, which had been in the land of Egypt, came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said, then there was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread, and Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, you shall do. When the famine was spread all over the face of the earth, then Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. And the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. The people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was Now, can you not help but see, he has bread without measure. And who all gets it? Not just Egyptians. Who all gets the bread? The whole earth comes there. There's one place to get bread. One. That's it. There's no bread of life anywhere else but with Joseph. And when you come to Pharaoh, what does he say? You go to Joseph. And what did Jesus say? No one comes to the Father but through me. You don't get the Father's goods. You don't get Pharaoh's goods unless you go to Joseph. Because Pharaoh's the one who owns all of that bread. And it's not just for the whole Gentile world. Look at Genesis 42, one through three. Now Jacob saw, because remember, Jacob's still alive and all Joseph's brothers are still alive. He saw there was grain in Egypt and Jacob said to his sons, why are you staring at one another? He said, behold, I have heard there was grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us from that place so that we may live and not die. Then the 10 brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. In dire times, where do you get life-sustaining bread? You get it from Joseph. Who was the bread for? The whole world, Jew and Gentiles. And Jesus said in John 6, we know this, 30 through 35. So they said to him, what then do you do for a sign, Jesus, so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ain't man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who's giving you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Then Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. He says later in John 6, We'll, we'll just graze over it. But he says, my, my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. If you don't eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you don't have eternal life. Where is life? Now on the other side of the death and resurrection of Christ, it's only in him. He is the only bread of life. And everybody in the world has to come to him. 
because there's not grain anywhere else. There's not bread anywhere else. It's only with Jesus. So you ask of God, how can I live? He says, you have to go to Jesus for that. You go to my son. And then we look at this. They will look on him whom they've pierced. Joseph's brothers do come. And we won't go into it, but Joseph has this uh, series of events with them where he hides his identity. He doesn't look the same. He looks like an Egyptian. And he goes back and forth. He tries to get Benjamin to come. Benjamin does come. He hides Egyptian cutlery, in a sense, in their packs. And they get caught with it. And he's using all of these things to kind of, in a sense, teach them a lesson, but also to make sure that Jacob will come eventually. Then he can't take it anymore when Benjamin comes, his little brother, the only one younger than him. And Genesis 45, one through eight says this. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, have everyone go out from me, meaning send everybody out but these guys. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. They're shocked. We thought you were dead and you're alive. This is insane. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be degreed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it is not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord of all his household and a ruler over all the land of Egypt. They're going to look upon him whom they've pierced. We killed you and you're not dead. That same thing is true of Jesus. John 19, 34 through 37. But one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, just John talking about himself, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. You're seeing, you killed Jesus. And that's at space and time. But then in the future, Revelation 1-7 says, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be, amen. His brothers thought we killed him, and there he is alive. And those who thought they killed Jesus, there he is alive. We're looking on him whom they've pierced. And then lastly, how does Joseph redeem? We saw a little bit of it in that 45 passage where he says, it wasn't you who sent me here, it was God. But Joseph's redemption comes by sovereign grace, just as Jesus' does. Look at Genesis 50, the last chapter in the whole book. Verse 14, after he had buried his father, so Jacob is dead, Joseph returned to Egypt and he and his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us 
and pays us back in full for all the wrong ones we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged before he died saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Can you not hear the gospel in there? Desperate call for repentance and forgiveness and what is granted to them from Joseph? Forgiveness. Based on what? The sovereign grace of God. You didn't do this. You're feeling the guilt of it, but this was God's plan. Now, are they guilty of it? Yes. They actually did sin in what they did, but Joseph is zooming out, looking at it from a bigger perspective. And we have that same concept about Jesus in the book of Acts, verse 2. 22 through 24, men of Israel, Peter says in his sermon, listen to these words, Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him. You yourselves know this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. If you're reading that and you're paying attention, you see an immediate contradiction. Because what does verse 23 say? How was Jesus delivered over? Well, it was by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. But you nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men. So who did it? The Pharisees and the Romans or God? The answer is yes. They are guilty of that sin, but they were never not going to do it. It was God's plan. And then those very people, if they turned and looked to Christ for salvation, would they have been forgiven? Absolutely. Was that Roman soldier who saw it forgiven? Yeah, absolutely. If he has real genuine faith, even though they did it. Time doesn't allow us, but the same thing gets said again in Acts 3, 12 through 21, Acts 4, 8 through 12. So here we go, putting a wrap on it. The narratives in the Old Testament are meant to point us to Christ. They're not just moralistic stories on how to live better and teach your kids not to argue. It shows us Christ. Joseph is a blinding shadow, and that's intentionally paradoxical. He's a blinding shadow of Jesus, that if you're reading this story and you're following it, and then you start reading the account of Jesus in the New Testament, you start going, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. This sounds like Joseph type stuff. This sounds like this picture of this savior type. And then you look at why would God include this long story of Joseph? I mean, that, that's like a, a, it's over a fifth of the book is Joseph, who really doesn't play a, that big of a significant role. Jesus comes from Judah's family. He comes from the bad guy's family, not Joseph's. But Joseph is in here for three major reasons to preserve the lineage of Christ, because if if Jacob and his family stay out of Egypt, then they die. And then there's no fulfillment of the promise of Genesis 3, 12, 15, 17. So that's point number one. Here's the other significance is it sets up 
one of the greatest illustrations of salvation or the greatest illustration of salvation through Christ, which is the Exodus, right? They have to get to Egypt somehow because that Exodus story has to happen, which is the most significant illustration of redemption, of, the, of how we live as Christians. That has to happen. So Joseph's critical to that. He's got to get the people to Egypt. And then thirdly, it's supposed to make us long for Christ. We need a beloved son of the Father. We need someone who comes back from the dead. We need someone who has all authority in the land to sustain life. We need someone who will forgive our transgressions. We need someone who will point us to the greater plan of God so that we take ourselves out of it and we just worship. And that's not gonna be Joseph because that just happened in time and in space for him and his 10 brothers or his 11 brothers. We need a greater version of that and that greater version is the Lord Jesus Christ. So we can see the New Testament account of Jesus and our mind races back to Joseph and we say, give us Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for the consistency and the internal cogency of your word. The more we study, the more we see a master plan unfolding. The more we see an incredible design to not only human history, but redemptive history that this isn't a piecemeal together collection of truisms, positive stories, tragedies, comedies, ultimate victories, that this is the story of God coming down to man to restore what was lost in the garden and give us an even greater reality and experience of who you are. And that comes through Jesus Christ. And so we see, Lord, the anticipation that's supposed to build the wedding of our appetites for Jesus, for a true and better Joseph, when we read those 13 chapters. And may we see those truths there be drawn to greater worship and gratitude and thanksgiving for the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is what Joseph could only dream of ever being and would now never desire to be, having been in your presence for these many years since his life. So, Father, we thank you for these texts, and we thank you for the Bible. We thank you, most importantly, for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.